You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. We have a huge range of guests in the uh, green room waiting to come into the studio today. We've got uh, people from the Climate Council, La Trobe University and Monash University. But in the studio right now with me is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am well, yeah. And we've got Liv doing our Twitter feed. Yell, Liv. Hey. There you go. Um, she's in here live. Um, we normally would have Dr. Jen and Dr. Ewan in this morning, but uh, Dr. Jen's unwell, and I forced Dr. Ewan to stay home and look after her. A um, bit mean, but uh, we had to put the, uh, the, you know, I called the CDC or our version yep. of them and sent quarantine them down there, quarantine the them out. So there we go. We're all good. Um, but there's some big stuff happening at the moment. Huge stuff. It's really exciting well, week in science. The biggest thing for me was the fact that apparently uh, there's a new Thomas the tank engine <laughs> named Shane from Australia. Wow. From Australia as yeah, well. Yep, from Australia. New Thomas the Tank Engine named Shane from Australia and I'm going to be copying it from my family for quite some time over this. That's amazing. <laughs> I had not heard this. You can tell which one of us has kids and uh, which one doesn't. Yeah, I yeah. have no well, idea. Well, if it's any consolation, the information came from my wife and my kids. So <laughs> I think that says something. But uh, yeah, and I also heard this week the term science for science's sake coming out a lot. In Interesting. The, you know, this was from the, the released uh, emails and that. From oh, the, the, the CSIRO leak, yes. Science is, a to me, a process. Mm. It's not a thing. Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a process. And and you might say science for humanity's sake, but not for... Science's just, sake, yeah. Who writes this crap? Oh. Anyway, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, anyway, we're going we're gonna to talk some news. So um, you've been pretty excited this week. Do I, I need to play something I to... Think, I think we do preface, need a little um, intro for this little section. intro, folks, for, so. uh, for this segment. Let me play this. It starts off slow, but you, I think you'll, you'll, you'll get, get the there picture in, the end. in yeah. the end. Here we go. Here we go. This absolutely <laughs> Thunderbirds is real. Yeah. This has happened. SpaceX, right? Now this is the brainchild of Elon Musk, Mr. PayPal, Mr. Mm. Tesla, right? Mr. Rich. Mr. Rich. <laughs> Richie Rich. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. And I'm sorry, Elon Musk, best he sounds like he's from Thunderbirds to me. This yeah. name is like superhero, supervillain, we just don't know. Yeah. But you know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so Elon Musk, um, he was one of one of the guys to pioneer this SpaceX. Now this is the private company that is basically looking to make cheap, efficient space travel, uh, reusable rockets, mm. basically to, to make st- space travel more efficient and, and cheaper so that we can eventually, his, his idea, I think, is to get to Mars, colonise Mars. Mm. Big goals. Do big goals stuff. for this guy. Indeed. It's very exciting. But the big news this week is that SpaceX has been trying to launch these uh, reusable rockets, I suppose you could call them. Because, you know, every time you launch payloads into space, you take the rockets, you shoot them up into the atmosphere, and it's very hard to get them back. In fact, we don't. We just jettison them. They either burn up on their way back to Earth or they just float around in, uh, in orbit. But this time... They've actually landed a spacecraft. Mm. Now, that is really huge because, you know, these these rockets are these long torpedo-like structures, right? They're very top-heavy. They're quite difficult to land. Now, last December, SpaceX 
for the first time landed one on on land and that was great and everyone was really excited but this week they've managed to do what they haven't done before and that's land one in the ocean Mm. now sorry i should say on a barge in the ocean not in the ocean itself um but the reason why that's so difficult is you can imagine they're not on a barge that's constantly moving you've got high winds you've got waves all sorts of things so you've got this really unstable surface yet they've managed to land this top heavy rocket on this barge Mm. now that's great for a couple of reasons and one of them is basically that if you want to if you want to land them basically you want to try and catch the rocket where it wants to fall right it's really efficient to kind of turn it around and send it back to where it came from takes a lot more fuel takes a lot more precise movement engineering that kind of stuff but by landing it in the ocean on a barge you can basically it's like catching a ball you know putting positioning yourself under the ball Mm. rather than having the ball move to where you are and unfortunately you know or fortunately in our case because it helps us survive but you know a big portion of this planet's surface is made up by oceans so you're not going to and and these things are generally launched from florida yeah and there are parts of florida where believe it or not folks people live (laughs) and so you you can't just be landing these things wherever you want and the ocean is a safe isolated locale that is relatively close to the launch location exactly and so this is the first time they've been able to do it on the barge in the ocean and so the fact that they've successfully done this once they're going to try it again i believe actually just today they launched Mm. another rocket with some nasa payload up to uh the international space station i think today or is it the same one oh is it the same one yeah well the the, the payload gets there tomorrow i think oh, or, or late tonight yeah so the yeah, payload gotcha. but but the the reusable part the, yeah, the first came stage back. came back and yeah and it's it's extraordinary because we you know when, when you think about the difficulty oh, in doing this yep. it is extraordinarily hard i yes. mean i mean one of the hardest parts of the moon landing of course was the the actual landing mm. on the moon part mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um now we have six times the moon's gravity mm-hmm. and we have something the moon doesn't have it's called wind. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, this is this is really tricky stuff. I mean, the the engine we had, uh, you know, one of the guidance engineers from this program on on our show a few mm. years back, and and this is non-trivial stuff. Absolutely, this is really it's high really end, difficult. you know, and it, Thunderbirds. Yeah, it's Thunderbirds. It's, it stuff. is. It's Thunderbirds, it and it's amazing because when you watch the video of it, you know, YouTube the video, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it actually looks like somebody's just playing the launch of a rocket going up backwards. Yeah, yeah, in reverse. Yeah, <laughs> in reverse. Yeah. It's just it, it's it's almost unbelievable how precise this thing is it's yeah. amazing yeah so it's 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 impressive so have a look folks um we've shared it a couple of times on twitter and mm. and on facebook it's it's worth having a look at because it really does show that um this commercial company yeah you know, which is which is interesting that space can be commercially viable yep. um has managed to do this incredible feat um with you know a few tries they've had a yeah. few misses you know yeah. there's no doubt about that but um but they've updated as they've gone and yeah. and this is a new version of the rocket which i think they the one of their comms people referred to as you know the old one was version 1.1 1. 1, yeah and this is version 1.2 yeah. so they're not actually yeah. you know they're just starting oh yeah. no, another thunderbirds you know falcon 9 Sounds like a Thunderbird yeah. rocket. It's amazing. This yeah, is just, just it needs to launch from under a under secret lair in, yeah, in an island bottom somewhere. Bottom of a volcano yeah, or whatever yeah, exactly. it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah that sort of stuff. <laughs> well, um, I was reading about uh, some new work that uh, came out from a guy named David Pollard, who's a paleoclimatologist at Penn State, and he was looking at the expected sea level rise that you'll get from the Antarctic ice sheet melting. And this is something that is of great concern. I mean, for those of you who haven't been following along, you know, ice that's sitting already on the ocean um, will change the salinity level of of the ocean when it melts, which has its own effect, Um, but it doesn't rise the sea level in the same way that ice that's on land that melts and heads into the ocean will. 
if you're unsure about that, put an ice cube in a glass and get a texture and <laughs> do a little and watch what happens. And, yep, you know, watch it melt. And watch it melt and, and the, the level will not um, go up. But if you drop the ice cube into the glass, well, mm. look out because it's going to overflow. Anyway, um, they've been looking because one of the things that I understand, and Dr. Ailey, you're, you're the expert in this area, but that, that is done is in order to look at potential sea level rises, we look at what's happened historically over a protracted period. And, and part of the way we do that is look at how coastlines have changed. But of course, changing coastlines aren't just due to sea level rises. No. They're also due to tectonic changes and changes in yep. you know structures due to earthquakes and volcanoes Absolutely. and, and, and um, erosion and other, other things. So it's hard to kind of decouple them. So some of this uh, new research is trying to take that more into account. And in looking at the Antarctic sort of melting zone, they've found that uh, they estimate that by 2100, which is actually not that... So I like to think of that as within our children's lifetime, yeah, if you have it y- is, young absolutely. children, mm-hmm. um, that the sea level uh, rise attributed to this will be somewhere between 64 and 114 centimetres. Now, it f- feels like a, a sort of large range, but a lot of this work is about narrowing that range mm-hmm. down. That's the, the mm-hmm. point of doing this, and previous um, versions have been less less precise. So... It's that... I mean, it sounds pretty, uh, pretty bad, um, you know, when you're talking about... Um, you know, uh, adding in all the other bits and pieces, um, you know, from you know, the Greenland ice sheet mm. as well as um, just the, the change in uh, the, the, the water level due to warming itself because, yep. you know, the water expands. It doesn't seem Absolutely. like it would be Things a lot, get warm, they expand. but actually it's, it's mm-hmm. enough that gives you a bit of a rise. Mm-hmm. And then we're talking about end-of-century levels of somewhere between 1.5 and 2.1 metres, which is actually pretty substantial. Yeah, well, that's huge and much mm. bigger than, than, for example, the estimates from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I think one of the interesting mm. things about this work is, you know, by looking back in the past, we can also see more about... About, well, hang on, we're missing mechanisms and things here because one of the, the biggest uncertainties about future sea level rise to do with ice sheets is that we don't actually model ice sheet changes very well mm, in our mm, computer models. Yeah. And I think that's what these guys had to look at as well, incorporating some of these lesser known um, mechanisms to, to try and get a better handle on it. And yeah. it's, it's really interesting. And they definitely, I mean, the thing like that, well, I mean, the data, as you said, it actually comes out as double the mm. previous predictions, mm. which is scary in itself. Mm. Um, and that's partly because you, when you bring in the yeah. ice and you start to work on that data as well there's yeah. you know there's a lot more happening yep. um but the thing i like about it is is the fact that it relies on two warm periods in history yeah and and the and one of them is 125,000 years ago so yeah. that's kind of in the range of human that's, humans were around that's right. um but the one before that was three million years ago yeah. so we're not talking about two that are really close together or no, you know, no, we're no. talking about quite a protracted that's period over which this sort of data is um is being used so it's um it's fascinating. The, the other thing that they, they find in their predictions, and this is the bit that I just find mind-boggling, is that as a result of this activity of humans, the actual peak in sea level rise is not as estimated to occur until about um, three or 4,000 years from now. So we, we keep thinking That's in terms right. of you know, 80 years yeah. or you know, sea level rise is going to be a problem for us. Yeah. But the actual peak because of our activity, yep. will be three to four millennia yep. from now. And I just, you know, if we if we were today thinking of, you know, the ancient Egyptians and, you know, they really pissed away the, you know, the Delta area and we're still dealing with it now. Thank mm-hmm. you very much for 3,000 years ago for what you did. We, I mean, we don't talk about that no, sort of stuff because no. the impacts weren't like that. But, but we're having that kind of long-term impact, which is, you know, won't even be peaking, let yep. alone subsiding and changing yep. for three or 4,000 years. So... 
anyway, pretty, pretty disturbing stuff. stuff. Yeah. What else you got, Dr. Ailey? Well, on ice sheets, actually, there's been some interesting stuff coming out in the world of world of the Arctic and the world of, of ice sheets this week as well. Um, so speaking about ice sheets melting and, mm. and things changing, did you know that ice sheets melting and changes in position of where they are can actually change the wobble of the Earth's axis? Oh, yeah. And they've actually found this has happened over the past kind of 20 years, and it's... It's weird. It's awesome, actually. Yeah, I think right. it's really interesting Disturbing. science. Well, it is. So, yeah. I mean, when you think about the Earth and the Earth rotating and how it rotates, um, you know, in the course of a day and then around the sun, it wobbles on its axis, okay? It's kind of like a spinning top. You know, the, the top of the top doesn't stay exactly mm, where it processes. is. It processes. That's yeah. the word exactly. So, axial precession is mm. the word. So, basically... That's due to things like gravitational pull of the sun and the moon and, and all kind of stuff like that. But it's also to do with, um, interestingly, even things like seasonal changes. Okay, mm. So as we go from winter to summer, that can affect exactly the position of the, of the North Pole and the South mm-hmm. Pole. Um, even things like big weather systems can change it very, a, bit, yes. a little tiny bit. I mean, really tiny bit. And what they find is that, you know, normally this wobble means that the, the North Pole, for example, moves about 10 metres over the course of the century. Hmm. But there was some work done back in 2013 by some um, researchers from the University of Texas that basically showed that uh, Greenland ice melting was changing the position of the North Pole. And instead yeah. of its usual kind of trajectory, the mass loss from the ice sheets in Greenland had suddenly the, the Earth's North Pole had taken a turn to the east and it had moved a lot more than it had and that they could tell in the last century. So that was in 2013. And recently, some NASA scientists, uh, this week they published a, a paper looking at this, and they found that not only Greenland was really important, and also, funnily enough, the, uh, the West Antarctic ice sheet, which is what we were talking mm-hmm. about just before, um, but also changes in rainfall patterns. Right. So basically, if we're thinking about how the wobble of the Earth's axis changes, it's due to, to mass changes. Mm. And the biggest way that mass can change is through water, right? The water, yep. the hydrological cycle. So ice and ice melt and changes in that can be one thing, but also a lot of water's in the atmosphere, right? Yeah. And so if you change the preferential positions for where that water is, um, it will change the wobble of the Earth's axis. And mm. so they found that a, a big prolonged drought in, uh, on the Eurasian continent has basically, they think, contributed to some of this shift in where the it's North amazing. Pole is. Mm, it's amazing <laughs> stuff. If, if people want to look back about 10 years on this show, I made an outrageous statement <laughs> that climate change would soon um, be seen in size, seismic activity and yeah. changes in plate tectonics. Yep. And this is exactly the yep. sort of stuff that will lead to that. We haven't seen much of that yet. No. But I think there is a correlation between parts of El Nino and seismic activity in certain parts of the world. And um, there was a paper in there a while back. Mm. And, and we will see, I think, fairly major changes in seismic activity as a result of the redistribution of mass well, it's the globe. Exactly, and that's what it is. It's Has a redistribution. Yeah. It's really interesting. On that uh, loving note, <laughs> uh, we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in a moment with our first guest from um, La Trobe University. And um, you're listening to Einstein the Gago on 3 R. 3 Triple Uh, you're listening to Einstein Gogo on 3 Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Tatiana Suarez da Costa, who is an NHNMRC Early Career Research Fellow in Biochemistry at the La Trobe Institute of Molecular Science at La Trobe University. Tatiana, welcome. Good morning. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, look, it's great to have you in. Yeah. Um, now, you, you're working in the area of antibiotics, and 
I thought we might start this discussion by you telling us first mm-hmm. with something like penicillin, mm-hmm. how how this actually works, like mm-hmm. what, what the, the sort of pathway, the goals are for something like penicillin. Sure. So I'm sure most people are aware of penicillin. That was discovered back in the 1920s, actually, mm. and always seen as the miracle of modern medicine. So how it works is it actually targets the cell wall of bacteria. Okay. So bacteria, I'm not sure if you know, but in bacteria, there's a cross-linking that happens in the cell wall to give its rigidity. So what happens is with penicillin, it actually stops that cross-linking from happening. Okay. So pretty much the bacteria just die because yeah. they're not able to produce that cell wall. Right, so, so the, the, the cells literally fall apart or, or don't, yeah, they burst and break open. And, exactly. Right, that, that exactly. Sounds, <laughs> didn't know that. That sounds pretty cool. Um, now, you're working on a different model, though, um, mm-hmm. which is a completely new pathway to mm-hmm. take. How, how, is, how is that different? Tell us about this new yeah. angle. So the issue with existing antibiotics is that bacteria are quite clever and they're able mm. to become resistant to them. So what we're trying to do is actually look at a different pathway altogether. So a pathway that bacteria have no resistance to. And that pathway is a pathway that's only found in bacteria, not humans. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to worry about toxicity in humans or any side effects. Okay. So the pathway we're actually looking at is a pathway that makes an amino acid called lysine. Mm-hmm. And you, as you might know, you know there are a number of um, amino acids um, and we don't make all of them actually. We only okay. make a few of them and you might think the bacteria are quite simple but that actually they can make all 20 naturally occurring amino acids right. and lysine being one of them and that's a building block for the production of proteins which are essential for life. Do, do we need lysine? So, so we don't make it but we, we need it. Of course we do. So we have evolved to stop making lysine because it's actually quite energetically expensive okay. but we can get lysine from what we consume in our diet. Okay. Yep. So we, by eating other organisms we can get our own lysine so mm-hmm. we don't have to make it ourselves. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you're, you're targeting this, this new pathway with mm-hmm. lysine. So, so what's the, the goal here? Is it to, I mean, obviously, um, y- you know, lysine is part of the bacteria's sort of biological process. Mm-hmm. So are you trying to just knock it out or stop it producing it or remove mm-hmm. its ability? I mean, how does, how does that pathway yeah. work? So it's a pathway which means it's a series of reactions. So mm-hmm. each reaction is controlled by a molecule, which is a protein yeah so we're looking at the first protein in that pathway that's because that protein controls the rate of the entire pathway so if you can block that protein we block the production of all the downstream products Mm, so what's interesting about that pathway not only produces lysine but the product before that is actually an essential component of the cell wall of bacteria so it acts kind of in a similar way to penicillin but it's actually targeting something else another component of the cell wall Mm. so we're actually knocking out lysine production in bacteria as well as in um you know not a- they're not able to produce their cell wall as well so we're doing targeting two things mm. at once which is actually quite interesting yeah presumably if you're yeah. doing well two things at once maybe uh, i'm not sure will, will that mean that the bacteria will form resistance as time mm-hmm. goes on faster because there's two things being attacked or slower do we have an idea of so how yeah, it will work yeah no that's a great question and the interesting thing about these proteins is there's different ways of you being able to block it mm-hmm. yes yeah? so there's different ways of of that protein, like stopping that protein from functioning properly. So um, we can actually produce small molecules binding in different places of the protein. So it would be very hard for the bacteria to become resistant to it because mm-hmm. we have to mutate a lot of 
places and by doing that it probably won't be able to survive anyway so the idea is actually blocking those multiple places whereas antibiotics these days they only block at one place so if the the bacteria can mutate and change the makeup of that pocket that it's binding to then it can become resistant to Mm. it but we're trying that multi-targeted approach Mm. that hopefully will slow down the resistant mechanisms that bacteria acquire. Now in in the past if we take something like penicillin Mm -hmm. which is where all this started we had one version and we kind of applied it to anything we could but over the years we've developed many different types of antibiotics and and some of them are more uh, specific to particular Mm -hmm. types of bacteria or particular infections Mm -hmm. so you might get one that's you know good for for this type of infection Mm -hmm. of the skin and you might get another one that's for this you know for a a, a nasal infection or something Mm -hmm. Um, how applicable is this new technique to that I mean are we are we talking about having one type of new Mm -hmm. antibiotic or is it a technique that you'll you see being applied to many different types Mm -hmm. so that's what we call broad spectrum Mm. um, antibiotics versus narrow spectrum antibiotics and there are pros and cons for both of them really so the broad spectrum they act on a number of bacteria and the narrow spectrum they work on a narrow range of bacteria so the one so if you target the lysine pathway depending what part of the protein we are targeting remember i said there was a multi-targeted approach so there's one part of the protein that is found in all bacteria yeah mm-hmm. so that protein is exactly the same so if you can target that we can kill a number of bacteria but if we can actually target a different part of that protein then it is a lot of differences between bacteria so then we can create the narrow spectrum agents and there's good things and bad things about each of them because if you go to a doctor and get you don't get diagnosed straight away yeah so you, yeah. most of the time they don't know what bacteria infection yeah, you have mm. so usually you get a broad spectrum um, antibiotic first especially if you have a life-threatening disease like yep. meningitis or you know if you actually so they they'll give that to you first and once it's diagnosed then they move on to the narrow spectrum or they'll start with the narrow spectrum if that doesn't work they go to the broad spectrum so there is so the good thing about targeting this lysine pathway is that we can make both mm. the broad spectrum and the narrow spectrum depending where we are what we're targeting in that protein yeah, so, mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, people often talk, talk about good bacteria and yes, bad bacteria yes. and stuff like that. Does this, does this kind of work have any scope for being able to target particular types of bacteria? And, you know, I mean, one of the problems with antibiotics is that you take them long enough and you get resistance and yeah. also... Your gut Turns your is gut gone. To, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So is there possibilities yeah. to, to target with this? Yeah, so there are good bacteria, as you mm. said, on your skin, mm. in your digestive tract. that are actually important for you. They kill viruses and yeast and things like that. So if you're looking at broad, broad spectrum, yes, then you're going to kill them all, but as long as you're taking your antibiotic. But once you stop, they will, they will grow back. Mm. Um, but, but if you can produce those narrow spectrum antibiotics, then absolutely we can target one pathogen over the other, and that will be fantastic if you can do both, mm. um, especially when the bacteria infection has been diagnosed, so we know exactly what we're dealing with. We can give the um, the patients a narrow spectrum antibiotic, which will be fantastic. So that wouldn't affect the good bacteria in us. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's interesting stuff. How far along are you with this? Because I know these things can take you know literally oh, decades yes. <laughs> to actually yeah. p- produce. I mean, is it sort of proof of principle stage, or are we further along? Yeah. So I've been at Latrobe now for about a year, so mm-hmm. it's very much early stages we have proof of concept that the lysine pathway is a great way to develop Mm -hmm. antibiotics so if bacteria don't have that pathway they can't survive 
So that's tick number one. So now we're trying to find ways to block um, this protein, this essential protein in bacteria. So we're trying to um, stop them from... So we're designing small molecules that can actually block the different parts of the protein. Mm. So that's where we're at now. And we have proof of concept that these molecules, they kill bacteria, um, but they are not toxic to human cells. So that's just been recently done. So now in the process of actually testing it against a number of drug-resistant bacteria. Mm. Um, and then we have a number of collaborators who will be able to do that for us because that's what's interesting, you know, bacteria that are resistant to existing antibiotics, how would they cope with our own molecules? Yeah. You know, would they be better off or not? So that's the next stage of the, the research. It's fa- fascinating <laughs> stuff. I, yeah. I, I, you know, hopefully you'll have uh, some very large international drug companies beating down your door with oh, big uh, suitcases full, <laughs> yeah. full of cash. And, uh, it is, it, you, you don't hear many stories about new approaches on antibiotics. I mean, this is this is one of the big issues, and you know, you, I, I sometimes always have this image of people looking for new antibiotics, just snorkeling around the Barrier Reef, hoping they'll, <laughs> they'll dig something up that's you know novel. So it's good to hear this sort of stuff going on here in Melbourne. Um, thanks so much, Tatiana, for coming in and talking to us, and hope the work goes well. Thank you for having me, Dr. Tatiana Suarez da Costa is an early career research fellow in biochemistry at the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science at La Trobe University. We're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest for today. Three. Triple. Ah. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gago on Three Triple R. We're a science program. If you haven't guessed it, then might want to listen a bit more carefully. <laughs> I think uh, now we have another guest in the studio. Ravi Ravitharan is director of the Institute of Railway Technology from Monash University. Ravi, thanks so much for coming in today. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me, Shen. Look, I I, um, I didn't even know there was an Institute of Railway Technology, so I was really excited when I saw this that you, you, you're available. Um, first, I mean, before we get into the work you're doing, I mean, what is this Institute of Railway Technology? What kind of what kind of stuff, and how big is it? You know, what do you do? Uh, the Institute is at Monash University. Mm. It has been there at Monash for the last 16 years. We work... <laughs> We're going to catch up. I know, I didn't we? even know about this. We work with about 130 various uh, different railway um, entities. Yep. And it is one of the largest industry-funded research unit within a university. Wow. Monash, you've got to get yeah, the word out. I, look, maybe every listener of this program is sitting back going, of course there's the Institute of Railway Technology. Why haven't you heard of it? But I, my suspicion is not. That's not going to be the case. Um, now, you, you're working in an area that um, I find particularly fascinating. We were talking just outside in the green room about the transport issues that are seen in Indonesia, and you were indicating, um, you showed me a couple of pictures, which I'll, I'll get you to describe, actually, for, for our listeners, of the, the car chaos that's going on there relative to rail. The Indonesia and several other uh, countries, developing countries, have a major problem with their traffic jams, mm. and that is costing them significant amount of economic uh, growth. I think um, Indonesia has identified like uh, 65 trillion uh, rupiah for a year wow. they lose out of um, a traffic jam. Wow! So apart from that, pollution. Just yeah. imagine the amount of pollution. So. Put those two together, I think it, some sort of solution has to be found. And uh, obviously, railway is yeah, the yeah. way to go. I think they have realized if you go to Hong Kong or Singapore, you can see the benefit of having a fantastic railway system. Mm, mm. And 
you know, it's it's one of those things where I think we have to get people around the, what we mean by traffic there. I mean, so mm. it's not the Melbourne version. You're coming in on the Monash and, yeah, it takes you an hour. It really is annoying. We're, we're talking about something quite different, aren't we, here? I mean, Oh, exactly. I think you cannot really plan anything. Like, sometimes it could be about two to three hours, mm. a traffic jam. I had some statistics, which I don't have it at the moment, but I think it is, uh, like, things have changed dramatically. Mm. And so are these, these, you know, people in their cars or are these transport of freight and things like that or is it a bit of both in terms of the traffic jams? It's a bit of both. Mm. I think um, like um, yeah, in Jaka- Jakarta and Surabaya as are regarded as the, the worst uh, city regarding uh, traffic jams mm. uh, for public transport as well as uh, for freight uh, transported mm-hmm. through those now, cities. Now, rail—I mean, rail costs like all other forms of transport. There, are, there are associated maintenance and, and delivery costs and so forth. And you're working on looking at the rail network in Indonesia, both the the network that's active and the bit I love the bit that's uh, inactive. You see, I have this sorry, I have this image because you can see if you go up into the Dandenongs here and you see some of the old lines around Puffing Billy and the so forth, you can lines, see yeah. you can see the inactive parts yeah, and absolutely. and up around Hillsville, you know, they're rebuilding the lines up there. You I'm sure you're probably involved, Ravi, but you know they're, they're redoing and, and trying to extend those tracks to very, you know their original um, paths and so forth. But, but you're looking at this in Indonesia in a very unusual way. Tell us about that. Well, it is a quite an interesting project because we have done this similar type of work over here. Mm-hmm. What we are doing is in the Pilbara and in New South Wales and in Brazil as well, where we are using normal stan- standard um, rolling stock that we call it revenue vehicle, which is practically carrying people or carrying mm-hmm. uh, freight. We are using that to monitor the condition of the track. Not only m- condition of the track, the um, the rolling stock, how it behaves under that particular condition. Right. So, end of the day, we are telling the operators what is the condition of the track, when it should be maintained, when it should be planned to be maintained, and also what sort of uh, loads should be carried under that particular scenario and what sort of speed they can run under that scenario. Hmm. So, so we're talking about an extraordinary amount of data here because I, I always had this image that the way we monitor tracks was, you know, someone goes out there and goes, oh, this looks pretty good. We should be right for a few more years. Um, but but this is not it. I mean, you guys, this is, I have this image of this sort of rolling almost laboratory on 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 a just a standard use train that you guys connect up and then and it sends you back all this data. Is that right? That's right. They are actually instrumented to monitor the dynamic b- behavior of the rolling stock. So we are collecting data and almost in near real time, providing that information for analysis and reporting back to the operator to take some real-time decisions. Mm. And uh, this is, apart from real-time decisions, also to plan their uh, future spend, where they should be targeting their limited resources that they have, how do they actually go and um, look after their track. And this is relevant not only in Indonesia, it's also relevant in Melbourne or any other developed places. So that is how we see it. At the moment, it has been utilised in the heavy haul operations, in the Pilbara, in the uh, Hunter Valley, in Brazil, but it can be easily transformed into a 
public transport environment. And that's what we are doing over there in Surabaya in East Java, where a public transport, uh, um, like a mixed traffic environment, yep. where they are planning to use some of the freight um, to transport through this same um, railway network. We want to identify whether it can be transported and what sort of speed that they can run through those sections. Mm. So, so you can you can have this on a train and and monitor in a sense how well it's uh, going on the track at different speeds and then determine optimum speeds for that particular section of track. Or I mean, how how specific can you be? We can actually monitor every. A single uh, meter of a track. Wow! So I think that is the uh, uh, ability that we have. Uh, these are um, using uh, differential GPS, so yep. accurately we can monitor submeter ac- accuracies. Mm. So we can monitor, and we can actually even monitor every weld in the track. So the condition of that weld and provide feedback to the uh, operators or the maintainers, how they should be actually looking after that particular section of track. So what we are trying to put here is actually we can have like a passenger uh, rolling stock or freight rolling stock. Mm. So Mm. we had to actually work out for the passenger, we can run at a certain speed and uh, for another type of uh, rolling stock, you had to run at another speed. So it's it's ultimately incredible optimization of the whole network really that's that's amazing <laughs> and also it's a safe operation as well that's yeah. what it is about mm. yeah. it's not trying to run something which cannot really take up yeah. that particular yeah. operating environment yeah so ravi i have a dream <laughs> <laughs> that's for the melbourne <laughs> but but you know to me this seems like the sort of thing that would be on every train in every network in every major city. I mean, it would be, you know, we, we do this sort of monitoring in terms of safety and so forth in, in the airline industry and so forth, but, but in terms of trains, we hear all the time, especially here in Melbourne, about problems with tracks and, and so forth, and they've worn at this time, and, and, you know, there was an extreme heat event, and we, oh, we didn't notice these things were buckled, but, I mean, your technology is able to produce this in real time, or close to real time at least, um, everywhere in the network where trains are on the track. So why are we not I mean, I, I know the answer's money, but, <laughs> but let me ask, why are we not putting this out there in a the, in the broader sense? Well, if, if once again, taking the heavy haul, mm. in uh, some of the operations, they have on every train right. this uh, technology. Okay. So it is there is opportunity to put it on every train. Uh, you mentioned about money. Mm. Uh, money is uh, a, a big factor, but when you consider the delays mm. and other yeah. things, uh, it is not a major factor um, compar- in comparative terms. Uh, also, the other point I wanted to make is, in the in traditionally, what we normally do is we actually use a dedicated track geometry car which is actually running in between trains in the night time or stopping other trains and running these and collecting this data. And they cost significantly um, higher amount compared to this type of technology. So if the decisions are made and if the uh, overall, um, you know, considerations are put in place, I think these um, uh, technology is not that expensive. And it's not um, compared to the full running of the railway operation. It's not that much. Mm. And especially, I mean, there's two areas there. One is in saving 
commuter time and so forth and faults in the network. I mean, if you can avoid those, the flow on costs that you avoid are extraordinary. And, and second, as you say, when you're trying to transform a country um, like Indonesia into one that has a substantial rail network using some of the old disused as well as the currently used rail more effectively, then the, the savings would seem to, you know, I mean, just dwarf, completely dwarf the costs of these sorts of projects, presumably. In uh, East Java, that's what they have identified. Mm. Transport is one of their main infrastructure improvement that they have to do to improve their uh, the economic situation. And they have identified uh, certain aspects, and one of them is ports. They are actually going through a massive, um, a new, uh, massive introduction of new ports. I think about sixteen new ports are coming in state of the art, mm. and they will be the the best in the world. But they are now looking at the the logistic of connecting yeah. the port to their normal other uh, operations and that's where the um, railway has become one of the key factor. Mm. It's that's incredibly interesting stuff I have to say uh, I was naive to what was going on there in this this area but it's great to have had you in to speak to Ravi so much for chatting to us today and good luck with the work. It's my pleasure just Shane thank you very much for having here. Uh, Ravi Ravi Tharan is director of the Institute of Rail Technology at Monash University and doing some spectacular work both here and overseas. You're listening to Einstein the Gogo we're going to play a track now and we'll be back in just a moment. We'll be talking to Amanda McKenzie, who's the CEO um, of the Climate Council, which you have no doubt heard of before. Three, triple. In the studio now, we have Amanda McKenzie, who is the CEO of the Climate Council. You've probably heard about the Climate Council, but Amanda, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you in here. You've been in here before, um, some time ago, I think that was, it was quite a while back when I we feel last. I like it might have been when I was at the Australian Youth Climate Conference. Yes, quite I think a few so. Years ago. Yeah, yes. quite a few years ago. Um, so you've done well now. Um, uh, just give us a quick rundown of the Climate Council because I'm sure most of our listeners have heard about it, but just tell us a little bit about the organisation. Yeah, your listeners might remember that the Climate Commission was abolished as the first act of the Abbott government. Mm. And the Climate Commission was created to provide accurate information to the Australian public on. On climate change and we thought that the work it was doing was really valuable and important so we went out on a limb and said to the Australian public will you get behind us and fund it and we ended up running the biggest crowd camp funding campaign ever in Australia raised $1.3 million from 20,000 Australians in a week. You might recall that and then started the Climate Council. So the Climate Council's continued on that mission, providing accurate information. So we've got a range of different scientists, economists, business leaders, a whole range of experts that can provide authority behind our reports and then we have a great research team. But our job really is to get to the broadest possible audience with the information about climate change, the impacts, the solutions and uh, where water Australia needs to be doing. Mm. And we had, we had, we had an um, interview last year with Tim Flannery, which was right. great, with the launch of his book, which was um, attended by, you know, 100 or so of our um, loving listeners. Um, now, it, it's interesting to me, I mean, when you talk about communicating climate change and so forth, I'm, I'm curious as to how you feel that's going, because I, I have to say I still see many examples of very poorly communicated science that, that frankly, is actually... Um, getting in the way of us making this case as opposed to assisting. And the, the more is better 
uh, angle just does not work. I mean, I mean, what's your impression of that? You're in the mm. middle of it. Yeah, well, I think one of the big issues with climate change is it has been very difficult to communicate. It's a hugely complex issue. It's global. And for most people to relate to an issue, they need it to be local. They need it to be relatively simple so they can come across the issue and understand it relatively rapidly. And then they need um, to be able to look at those that they trust in the community and hear mm. a consistent message. So in climate change, you've had a range of different voices uh, spreading doubt on the issue. Mm -hmm. For many years, there's been a very um, strongly supported concerted campaign to spread doubt. And then also, the scientists haven't always helped themselves because they've um, potentially explained it in uh, very hard to understand ways for the community. Yeah, Dr. Ailey's one of them. Yeah. Uh, but she, <laughs> yeah, we, we, she, she does uh, a great job. <laughs> yeah, well, we, 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 have re we have recruited her to the show, par partly just because she's an amazing communicator, um, but also because she's an amazing communicator in this space. And mm. we felt that you know, it was very important. I sort of promised our listeners a couple of years ago we'd do more, um, which I think is a, you know, that piece of string just keeps getting longer, mm. but we will continue to do more. And having her in the studio um, helps with that. Now, one of the things that's, um, we, we've got you in to talk about is this issue around um, sort of global emissions and the way in which they relate to economies and, and how we're, we're looking and seeing perhaps the, the decoupling of the way in which we look at energy and, and global economies. I mean, what what's going on there internationally? Mm. Well, we've seen a flatlining of global emissions. So they're not quite going down, but they're not going up over mm. the last couple of years. So that may be a sign that they'll, uh, they may have peaked and mm -hmm. emissions globally may start to go down. This reflects what's happening in the US and China, where there's been substantial efforts to tackle climate change and to move to more renewable sources of energy. Similarly, in Europe that's been happening for quite a long period of time um, and we have seen obviously an escalation in emissions for many years prior to now so mm. it is good news unfortunately in Australia we're still seeing our emissions rising and mm. we're the biggest per capita emitter in the world. So, so now, now, now a big part of that is, is this idea that economies are coupled to mm -hmm. particular types of emissions or particular types of fuel source and, and energy source. Uh, I mean, in, in some of these countries, this, this must be starting to decouple for this mm. to be you know, a viable way for them to go. Yeah, it's one of the most prominent narratives, I think, in terms of the environment and the economy, that they are inherently opposed, mm. that we can't have economic growth unless we have environmental degradation. And that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. We can't do that long term. Of course, the economy has to be underpinned by a healthy environment. That just makes sense. Mm. So this decoupling of economic Although growth... I should say there, I, I mean, I, I agree with you, but there, there's a lag there, isn't there? I mean, that's, mm. that's the problem. I mean, items around the economy where people don't see an instantaneous interaction between A and B are the ones where, where the naysayers tend to jump in really quickly. And, and the mm. environment will have a, a lag effect on us that will be devastating. But not an immediate one. I think that's where it's harder to. Yeah, well, it's it harder to make the case. What the issue it? is, I suppose. Mm. So if it's um, toxic waste in a river, sure. it might yeah, be yeah. Might be immediate. Quick. But yep. there are um, there are uh, climate change is a good example of something where there is some lag time. Mm. So the climate change that we're experiencing now is due to emissions some decades ago, prior yeah. to yeah. now. Um, so it is important that we decouple emissions from um, from economic growth. So that is now happening in a number of different mm. economies. So that's really positive news, and it's uh, it's been what a, a range of advocates have been saying can happen for a long time. So particularly the drop. 
drop in the cost of solar power, wind power, the um, the mass manufacture of solar panels has been an important contributor to that. Mm. I, I suppose to be more specific, what we're saying here is a decoupling from coal and other dirty sources because mm. in a sense these some of these economies are, are very, very strongly coupled to some of these new technologies and new industries and that's absolutely extraordinary that that's happening but they're becoming decoupled to things like coal mm. whereas this is not happening in Australia. Well, one of the interesting things is that the research says that uh, groups like Climate Works have analysed where would we need to see energy sources in the future. And in terms of our electricity, they're saying that we'll actually need far more electricity in the future because we'll electrify our transport mm. so that renewable energy is powering our electricity cars for our homes, and, but yep. also our cars, etc. Mm. So there's actually a lot of potential for economic growth in the energy sector just in clean energy rather than dirty energy. Mm. And how's it going in terms of, um, you know, Australia's contribution from kind of top-down versus bottom-up? So, you know, grassroots people putting solar panels on their roofs as opposed to, um, you know, large-scale solar farms and things like mm. that. Because my understanding is that there's, there's more growth in the, in the bottom-up approach here than there is the top-down. And do you think that would, you know, what difference does that really make? That's exactly right. We've seen huge growth in PV panels. Probably most people will have noticed that in their suburb mm. they've seen that people are just getting solar panels in the last mm. few years. Mm. And we went from having about 600 10 years ago to having 1.5 million households with solar. So it's a huge proportion of the Australian population. So, you know, good on people that have been, been doing that. They've been doing it partly because it's been cheaper and partly because they want to make a positive environmental impact. But then you look at what's happening on the national scale... And and of course, we had a cut to the renewable energy target last year, and there was a whole lot of uncertainty for business. So we saw a drop in 2014 by 90% of investment in large-scale renewable energy, which really put the industry backwards. Mm. And even now, when there is a renewable energy target, although cut, there's a lot of uncertainty that remains. And particularly for some of those businesses that pulled out of Australia during that time of uncertainty, they're saying, well, why would I come back? It's not clear what is going to happen. At some of the state level, it is clear, like in South Australia or in the ACT, but federally, where is the government's position on renewable energy? It, it isn't mm. clear. You wonder when, um, you know, to be fair, it took Australia quite a long time to realise the car industry was a dead stick as well. Mm. Um, we, we seem to be a bit slow We're to. A bit slow, we we, we, we kind of love our old stuff that we've had. <laughs> to, you know, the Yalorn power station, the, uh, just, just uh, great it's memories. It's such a shame, you know. isn't it? You know, we're the sunniest country in the world. We're one yeah. of the windiest. Our scientists invented a range of solar technologies. Mm. We've been um, improving. <clears throat> Improving solar PV, but we just lagged behind. Yeah, yeah. In, in it was this interesting way. when we, we, we spoke to Keith um, Yamamoto. Uh, sorry, D David Suzuki. Who am I talking about? David Suzuki the other day on, on, on the show, and, and he said, "You guys have got one of the things we don't have in Canada: sun." Yes. You know, and, was, uh, and you know, I've been to Canada; it's sunny there. But you know, obviously, the number of sunny days compared to Australia is substantially lower in parts of Canada. Um, Amanda, before we let you go, I just wanted to, to get your sort of thoughts on what's happening with CSIRO, and you know, there's been a lot of leaked emails and a lot of information mm. coming out there and I mean you know as I said earlier in the show the idea of science for science sake not being something that they do anymore um, to me uh, you know that's fine but then it's CIRO <laughs> yes. you, you take yeah. the S out that's fine that might be you know th these are choices you know if you, if you mm. want to go and do that do that but don't call it science if it's if it's not science mm. um, I mean what's I mean you, you guys must hear this at the Climate Council and think what, what the hell is going on? Yes well we were hugely disappointed to hear that CIRO climate change research was being cut Mm. Um, and the idea that we just we cut it because we know everything we need to know is pretty limited uh, viewpoint. Like, of course, um, we know 
quite a lot about climate change so far, but the important thing to know is how is it going to change in the future? How will it affect our agriculture industry? How do mm. we make sure our health services are informed as to how it will, heat will affect our cities, for instance? There's just so many important things that SARO does that we need access to, and not just for Australia, but for the Southern Hemisphere. So our colleagues right around the world were absolutely shocked and appalled by by this decision. But I think also the idea that science should only be useful for immediate industrial gains yeah. is pretty ridiculous. Like, Well, it's just historically not backed up by fact. That's um, right. Yeah, you, have yeah. to, it, you have to allow scientists to explore things to then have some products that will arise mm. from it. Like a good example of sending, sending a man to the moon um, was one of the ways that we invented Velcro. Mm, um, yeah. Because they're solving this hugely important problem and they come up with a whole range of other That's things right. that can be useful. Yeah, look, I like the example of the laser. Yeah, you that's know, great. Fun, fundamental research on the Maser mm-hmm. by Charles Towns, and uh, if you've got the DVD player, folks, you yeah. know a big, absolutely big Wi-Fi uh, is another big one by yeah. Cyro. Yeah. yeah, so um, look, we're, we're out of time, Amanda. One of the things I'd like you to do in your role as CEO of the Climate Council is try and grab all the bits that are going from Cyro and get the exact same <laughs> crowdfunding <laughs> campaign to keep them going as you guys successfully did for the Climate Council. I have had some people suggest that maybe a billion dollars rather than one point three million <laughs> is yeah, a bit of a challenge. No, well, anything would help. Um, so. So, you know, maybe by the end of next week, because uh, I know the Climate Council got their money very quick, um, that would be fantastic. Amanda, thanks so much for chatting to us. Thanks and very uh, much. good luck with the ongoing work of the Climate Council. Amanda McKenzie there, CEO of the Climate Council. Folks, we're going to have to leave it there. Dr. Ailey, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks a lot, Shane. Good to have you. Uh, Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed. The shows will be up on our Facebook site and Twitter feed later today, hopefully. Um, I'm Dr. Shane. Until next week, remember science is everywhere and have a fantastic Sunday. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.